Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. We're Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast deeds met. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Speech Bubble Pod and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Speech Bubble Pod. Today, we have a very special show because we have two guests that are involved in one of the longest running comic shops in the city. They specialize in independent comics and uh, their reputation precedes them. Of course, I'm talking about the beguiling. We have Peter Berkamo, who's the owner of The Beguiling, and we have Christopher Butcher, who is the manager of The Beguiling, but he also is the director of the Toronto Comics Arts Festival, which is known internationally for the international guests that they get, the independent comic creators that come out. It happens every year in May at the Toronto Reference Library. Peter also owns Page and Panel, which is at the reference library as well, uh, to sort of expand the flavor of TCAF so that it's an all-year sort of thing. That's another store that you can go to. So I'm very happy to have them, and uh, I'd love to explore like the founding of The Beguiling and TCAF, and uh, welcome, guys. Uh, Thanks. It's good to be here. So before we get into like the meat of the matter, so to speak, I want to get to know each of your early lives. What was your early life like? Where were you born? Uh, how were you raised? Give us a little picture of your childhood. Strict Amish. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was born in a university town called Champaign-Urbana in Illinois and came to Toronto at age one and a half. So uh, Etobicoke uh, suburban upbringing encountering the comics importantly mostly through the newspaper comics and uh, mad magazine as a youth not really getting into what we think of the comics that i you know uh, you get in a comic book store until my teens that's uh, 
That's me. You? Yeah, that's Peter for that's those Peter. Oh, listening. Hi, I'm Chris. I got into comics uh, because I liked toys and uh, <laughs> animation on Saturday mornings. Transformers was the first cartoon I got to watch that wasn't on TVO. Uh, for you American listeners, that's like our version of PBS. Yeah, it blew my mind. I loved it. And I went to a, a Becker's, uh, the convenience store across the street one day, and there was a Transformers comic book. And it kind of changed everything. Uh, and I started reading that. Uh, and then I would realized that comics took a full month to come out and I did not like waiting. So I started picking up other stuff and eventually uh, through some like Marvel star comics as befitting comics for like an eight year old or uh, friends birthdays who were like, oh man, you haven't read this. You got to read this with the X-Men and G.I. Joe and stuff like that. Finally, I was just sort of reading everything. I saw a multicolored grenade sticker on a comic book shop window one time and i was like it really spoke to me and then it was the invisibles which has become one of my favorite comic series and from there on it was just sort of like i was always looking for more challenging more interesting different material uh i grew up in and around outside of the city for the most part uh, but tried to get down to the city as quick as i could because i realized it was more where i wanted to be Awesome. What is it about comics as a medium that spoke to both of you initially? More stories. If you're watching, <laughs> if you're watching TV and you're watching Transformers and, you know, you just want an extra Transformers story, especially one that comic took a lot longer to, to read for me at, you know, at eight or at least reread and get all the nuances out of than the like 20 minutes, 22 minutes of, of television. So for me, it was just like more stories with my favorite characters. And then now it's the stuff that you can you can't do in any other medium. Yeah, and I have a similar, like, I, have, I guess because uh, film and comics would be the two sort of ho intense hobbies of my youth, uh, watching film, reading comics, that are really oriented towards visual storytelling. But uh, it was fortunate that, you know, as I started to grow out of the things that had hooked me first. So Marvel and DC hooked at 15, by the time 17's rolling around already becoming, like, aging out of what they have to offer, sort of getting an, a serious interest in the nuts and bolts behind the visual storytelling of comics and mm. being finding a way to keep that interest in discovering authors like uh, Chester Brown, Dave Sim, Robert Crumb, things like that to then start collect, uh, you know, not just collecting and reading, but to, to take that uh, intense interest in the medium into adulthood. Hmm. Let's stay with that for a second, because the beguiling is known as sort of the shop that really caters to indie creators like Seth, like you mentioned, Chester Brown, uh, Robert Crumb, those sorts of things. Did that develop out of your own uh, fandom for those particular comics? Or was that always part of the store's uh, calling card? Well, Peter's not the first owner of the Beguiling. Right. It was sort of established yeah. ahead of time. So the store was opened in 87 by a couple of people who I think were very much like me looking, you know, they had grown up. They were looking for stuff that appealed to them as adults. And a lot of people, you know, legitimately look to comics for the same type of enjoyment they got from those comics as children but some people look for something very different in the stories they look when they when they get older and uh, i think the the beguiling uh the original staff were very much into what was coming out at the time so you had in 87 you had you know mouse has obviously already come out you have uh Love and Rockets is a big thing, the output of Fantagraphics, so uh, uh, Peter Bagg's Neat Stuff, uh, Dan Klaus's uh, Lloyd Llewellyn, these are among the 
the, the comics that are first stocking the shelves in an attempt to differentiate themselves from other comic shops. Yeah, but there's also the stuff that straddled the line between superheroes and that material as well. Things yeah. like Sandman, things like Ronan, Frank Miller's, you know, everyone, yeah. there were a lot of people on the fringes of the mainstream doing whatever they could to do comics that didn't look like Superman and Batman or Spider-Man sure. and the X-Men. And that's a lot of what made early comic shops interesting, even before The Beguiling, are those things that the comic market was producing but couldn't find their home on convenience store newsstand, right? So Epic and Heavy Metal being the things that did make it onto the newsstand, but all of the things that the direct market had that you know, couldn't be sold uh, by some news agent around the, you know, in some random city that had to be stocked by, you know, that, that were made product that was made for uh, comic book, comic book shops. So when did you both uh, get connected to the beguiling? You, you were came, first. Yeah, I started in uh, 96 or so as an employee, mostly just uh, filling in when someone needed a day off, uh, largely just working for credit to feed my habit. Were you already a customer before then? I was a customer from maybe two or three months after they opened, just in the fall after this. So you had, I think you told me you'd figured out the uh, yeah. opening date in June of 87. Yeah, it was June, I think, 5th, 5th. 1987, uh, 185 Harvard Street, yep. three blocks west of Spadina, the original address. Vacant to this day since they left in the uh, in the early 90s. Oh, cool. So, uh, so it's basically you guys' 30th anniversary at this uh, point, right? Yes, it is. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So... Mm. Did your did what they were selling in terms of independent comics coincide with your interest in independent comics, and that's why you kept going there, or uh, how did you become a customer? So. And I guess I, one of the reasons that store captured me as a customer is it had material to challenge me, mm. right? So I was going in for things I knew I wanted, and so you know maybe I'm missing some issues of Yummy Fur or something like that 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 was established. But then there were those off format things that I had not encountered in other comic shops like uh, the giant raw uh, magazine issues or uh, the German editions of the Robert Crumb sketchbooks. Just to catch people up, uh, Raw was the comics magazine edited by Art Spiegelman. Uh, Yummy Fur was Chester Brown's uh, comic that he did. So that that's what Peter's referring to. Yeah. And so those, you know, there would be that's something I feel is important to this day as a comic shop is that, yes, you want I want to have the comics that you as a customer are looking in for, but I also want to have the comics that you've never seen before. And so you, as someone who is into this medium coming into my shop, can hopefully discover something new anytime you come in. Right. And then you became an employee? Like, they, they approached you or you approached them? Or? Uh, it's not really how it works at comic book stores. You just sort of hang around long enough and you eventually get a job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if or you get kicked out forever. Like it's if it's, you hang around too much you might get kicked out. Yeah, it's a it's a dangerous dangerous game to play for those of you who want to work in comic book stores. Explain. Know how to read the room. Uh know how to read the room. That's okay. the only explanation you need. Okay. Okay. Uh for me it was uh kind of similar actually. I was coming in and talking to Peter. You know, uh, growing up in Toronto, uh, City TV, uh, probably, I blame Mark, although it's probably not all his fault, Mark Asquith, um, you would see Comic Book Confidential uh, on late great movies. And I was always, ever since I was a teenager, I've been a night owl. I didn't go to bed probably until three or four in the morning. And then I, all through high school, I skipped first and second period. Actually, by the end, they let me change my schedule to whatever I wanted. So I didn't have class until like two o'clock, which explains a lot, I'm sure. So yeah, I... Uh, 
I would watch Comic Book Confidential, and I worked in a comic book store since I've been 16, and I didn't none of the comics that were there were comics that we had in my comic book store. Like, I didn't recognize almost anything in that whole, like, like air pirates. I kind of heard about cause it was kind of infamous, but um, yeah, it was very strange to me that there were all these comics that, uh, that, you know, fill the whole film, a good film, by the way, if you've never seen comic book confidential, it's uh, it's, it's really watchable. Comic book confidential was directed by Ron Mann. It's a documentary that basically explores like uh, the business of comics and interviews some of the great luminaries like uh, Will Eisner and Frank Miller, and ah, the business of comics and the art of comics, and which I think a lot of, of people skip out on sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we I worked in a comic book store. I had no idea what any of these comic books were that filled a movie. And you only see the movie at like 2 a.m. on city TV. Right, right. So and, uh, and coming to coming to the city for the first time as a teenager and you encounter a store like The Beguiling and you're like, oh, this is where the real comic books, like the comic books that are like challenging and interesting and funny and dirty are. Then uh, I don't have any access to at all living in Brampton. The and artistic comic books. Not even artistic, like capital A like that, but like, I don't know, the real comic books. There's there's just a the closest you're ever going to get with a superhero comic is probably Peter David on the Hulk in the 1980s and nineties. And it's Peter David's putting in his own issues around like parental abuse with his father into the Hulk. And he's putting in his own issues around addiction and, and all that kind of stuff, anger issues. Uh, he puts it into this, into the Hulk, into the Bruce Banner character. That's the closest you're ever going to get to something really real, I think in comics. And then he gets unceremoniously fired off the book and replaced with someone else. Cause he doesn't like that. The new artist is late and he's always making him work twice as hard in the last week. And that was a hell of an eye opener that you can invest your, your entire childhood, your entire adulthood, your relationships, into comics and then just be like cast aside if the artist, the hot artist is selling books based on the cover. Uh, so yeah, it's not necessarily about artistic comics. It's about real comics where I'm going to tell you a story about my life or informed by my life. That is my comic. Uh, and that for me, like the first time you read Adrian Tomine's mini comics where that guy gets fucking curbed, uh, the birthday cake one, yeah. that, that panel still sticks with me. Like you can't read a comic like that and go, well, it doesn't really, it's not really saying anything. No, clearly Adrian saw some guy getting curbed and that's stuck with him. Uh, that's the kind of thing. Love and Rockets is a lot of those moments. A lot of these kind of comics have these, these moments that are just like, and that's what I actually liked about Invisibles is like Grant Morrison was pretty honest early on it's like yeah i'm just writing myself as king mob so this is a bunch of like crazy shit that happened to me amped up like 10 percent so that it makes a good comic book it's more visceral yeah it's well like i said it's real uh that is that is my <laughs> that's my opinion but uh yeah no i i found the beguiling and uh peter is is a fascinating somewhat intimidating character uh in the in the store itself especially at the 601 location and uh yeah i just wanted to talk to him to find out what he thought about stuff seemed like a cool dude uh and we got to talking and as much as i wasn't a part of the world of comics that he was in i don't know we kind of became friendly friendsly yeah. And I think, you know, over the years, people will ask questions about it. it's like, oh, you hired so and so they don't really seem to read the comics you like. And it's like, why would I hire someone who reads the comics I like? Because I need someone to sell the other kind of comics that, you know, we, we've built a staff successfully by not necessarily targeting. We don't want mini me's running the store. You you want to find people who know things that you don't know to bring their strengths into the shop. Right. That makes the store kind of snobbish if everybody's into a certain type of comic. Sure. Right? Oh, I'm still incredibly snobbish, but <laughs> uh, I still want to have things that serve 
other audiences right. as well. Like I just hire a different type of snob, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. Exactly. I think a lot of guys who run superhero stores, it's almost always dudes. Uh, although shout out to Janet, the dragon. She's uh, doing her best uh, to fight all of the sexes. And Chris is the sidekick too. Yeah. Oh, and Chris is, I've never met, I've never met him. So, or them, <laughs> them. Uh, I'm using non-gender specific pronouns today. Gotcha. It's, it's always dudes and they don't think that their own tastes are snobby. They're like, no, we like all the superhero stuff. And it's like, oh, why don't you try carrying this? It's like, oh, we don't read that. We don't like that. That's snobby. Yeah, That's it, actually snobby. But no one would think that because their tastes are air quotes mainstream, which we don't. I don't love mainstream or independent as uh, terms personally. I don't know how you feel if you've softened over the years. No, I mean, I will use them when I know the person is within the comics industry and knows what they mean, but I would never use the term mainstream to someone outside the comics industry because it doesn't actually mean what it sounds like. Yeah, man, Raina Telgemeier is mainstream. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it sort of cuts off a whole level of what comics can be. And also great. the very things that, are, that the comic industry determ- determines are mainstream are as niche as niche can be they're not mainstream uh, because it's not uh, popular culture or at least it hasn't been but perhaps current hollywood box office receipts may prove me different yeah now it sort of is which so, is kind of scary so i was friends with a bunch of people from online uh, like brian o'malley and uh, jay torres uh, a lot of the guys who made up the early oni press days the early sort of image comics i worked on a bunch of image black and white books uh that kind of stuff. And uh, I was living in Toronto and I brought that to the table. That was maybe a blind spot for the beguiling at that time. I also read a lot of manga. I really liked manga. And uh, that was kind of what I brought to the table when I was talking to Peter. It's like, oh, do you know this guy's work? Do you know this was work? Who knows if, you know, you liked them, but you at least appreciated that there was an audience for that material. For and sure. the beguiling is about trying to serve those audiences, especially ones that are underserved. So that was probably also the impetus between why I wanted to have a comic book show in Toronto. Cause I felt like a lot of those guys would just get their artist alley table at, uh, I don't know, whatever fan expo was called 20 years ago and, uh, sit there for three days and not do that great. And then, you know, go on to the next thing. And yeah, there's, there should, there should be a show in Toronto that celebrates people that do work in Toronto first and foremost. Uh, and that was the argument I was having with Peter and he eventually I relented, uh, and that's why we founded TCAF, which we decided on the on the road to uh, SPX in Bethesda, Maryland, one time. And you know, I'm glad we did it. It was really good. Uh, it continues to this day. But it was exactly that that idea of wanting to find the comics that, like, the widest breadth of comics that weren't the audiences weren't being served, and the creators weren't being served very well by the existing situations, either by the distribution mechanisms or by the the conventions that were already going on in town, and celebrate their work and put that work first. So, so I brought that sort of half of the Rolodex to the first of TCAF and up to that content at the beguiling. And Peter brought the stuff that he liked. And that was, yeah, I think we respected each other's tastes. I don't think we ever always liked what the other one liked, but that was the best part about the beguiling. And then hiring new people on that had other great ideas about what comics should be. So when did you go from employee to owner? When was that opportunity presented to you? Uh, I think I'd been fired in 97 for (laughs) uh, not noticing a massive theft of anime video cassettes. Uh, But then uh, the previous owners were under the perhaps erroneous assumption that I had lots of money. Uh, So when it did come time that they both wanted to sell the store, uh, they came to me second, I think. But I did manage to find some money and uh, uh, did manage to buy the store. What made you want to own the store? That's a lot of responsibility. (laughs) I did not want to own the store, but I did not want someone incompetent to own the store because having 
uh, having a source for my comics in Toronto. And this would be a bit of a long answer, but yeah, you know, I routinely have this situation in my store where there's people who have been shopping there for 10, 15 years. Maybe we're their local comic shop, but whatever in Toronto, they found their way to us. And then maybe they'll take a job in a big city somewhere else and uh, they'll come back and they're like, oh, I had no idea how good we had it here because, <laughs> you know, I moved to, All the time. you know, and like there's some good shops there now, but uh, it does, it has happened. It's like I moved to LA or New York or a big city and people assume it's like, oh, I'll just go to the, there'll be a big, uh, something like the beguiling there. And there isn't always. Right. Right. And so I already knew uh, when the shop was being offered to me that it's like, if this gets managed differently or if this goes down, then I'll have nowhere to buy my comics. The internet as a place where you buy everything wasn't yet a thing. And did not exist. Having the source for my fix, small as it was, was a very, very important thing to me. I did not foresee a career in retail uh, or that I would be doing this as a a six-day-a-week thing for 20 years, but uh, it is... That is what has, has become. And I'm glad for it, but that was definitely not what I was thinking. I was thinking I have to maintain this place to get my stuff. Why did the original owners leave? Did they tell you? Uh, I think They were both finding a lot of success in film, is what I Yeah. One of them heard. became a film producer. The other became an art director. Who are they? Would we, would uh, we know them? So, Steve Solomon. So, you would know if you worked in the film industry in Toronto. If you wouldn't, you won't. If you don't. You wouldn't. And then if uh, uh, Sean Schofield uh, did have a career in comics as well, which was looked like where he was going when he left the store, uh, and he did the Existence graphic novel for David Cronenberg, he did a bunch of stuff for Marvel, did some X-Files issues that were very well received, but uh, has had greater success as an art director, uh, including the Saw movies um, oh, recently cool. and stuff like that. So he... I always know his career is doing well when he has not been in to buy comics for a long time because they keep him very, very busy. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're in there, you're you're owning the store, you you sort of have a source to buy your comics. So once you get the keys, like what's your vision for the store? Like what what do you want to do with it? The store had attitude, definitely. Like, (laughs) definitely had attitude. And uh, so that attitude I would describe as looking around at all of the other comic shops and say, let's do something else because these are awful. Right. Right. Uh, (laughs) And like, there were, that was, that was the attitude that I bought into. And, a lot of how I would describe that attitude more kindly is uh, that I share is like, I want a store that is more about reading these comics than about collecting them. Right. Sure, we still cater to collectors, but if I'm speaking publicly, if I'm doing something, putting forward, I want uh, this to be about the medium and about engaging it as a reader, not as I'm going to somehow pay for my kid's education with these the disposable periodicals. Right. And make no mistake, if, if you've ever been in the Big Island, they do still carry superhero comics. It's just not oh, what they're known for. For sure. And this, the Big Island has always, on a local level, worked operated as a strong local comic shop with a strong sales of superheroes, like stronger than ever now. However... I don't choose the superhero material unless it's perhaps by a local creator that we like as the thing I put front and center. So when you walk into the store, I want something that I feel more strongly about or that I feel has a broader audience front and center. 
So when I came into the store, uh, I was brought in partly to supplement the superhero side of things. Uh, the uh, Jerry, who was who was there, uh, soon reduced his hours to something like ten hours a week or start after I after I was sort of around the store, and I had spent the previous six years reading basically every superhero comic book. That was written. I was at a mall store and I had nothing to do for eight hours at a time. So I would just read every comic that came out every week, no matter if it was good or bad, because it was just content. Uh, and so, yeah, that really helps uh, when ordering comics and, and stocking that second for sure. sure. Yeah, that that fills in uh, that fills in the the gaps. But uh, yeah, that's the other thing, especially. Uh, I don't know about you know the, the five out five years between when you bought it and when I started there, but I really think that at least while I was there. Uh, we ordered everything, like everything that didn't look totally garbage, like like unpublishable garbage, but yet somehow it's still a comic book. We would order it. We would order at least one copy of stuff. Sure. Uh, and so, I mean, there were a lot of superhero books or even Marvel, DC image books, especially uh, Dark Horse books, especially that we would order that other stores that were supposed to be the superhero stores wouldn't get a lot of variants we would get that other stores wouldn't get. We were we were a lot of places. Uh, we were a lot of customer's favorite second store because whenever they went to their first store for whatever reason everyone has really deep loyalty to their comic book shop we would have all the stuff that their first store didn't have didn't order sold out of on the first 10 minutes of you know opening on wednesday morning uh or had never even heard of like we we would be the store to go find that so we're a lot of people's favorite second shop (laughs) second favorite shop definitely you're you're definitely one of my favorite second shops (laughs) one million when it was around uh and not in limbo as it currently is was also one of my favorite second shops because they carried a massive amount of comics so they always seem to have stuff in stock there's always a there's two different ways that that kind of phenomena produces itself and one of them is a store that aggressively orders everything in so as to have things for like the broadest level of clientele the other is which you see a lot in north america are stores that order things but do nothing to attract a clientele outside of the most focused Marvel Zombie DC collector, right? So even if they are ordering these other things, they're not reaching out to local college students or they're not reaching out to people who aren't already comic collectors, right? And so, which often means things on the rack that, oh, you know, fine, that's on the New York Times bestseller list, but I couldn't sell one uh, (laughs) because... You know, there's nothing about your shop that is going to that in the way that you run your shop that is going to bring in someone who isn't coming there to pick up their weekly Wednesday fix because they are ingrained as a comics reader. Right. You're you're basically just catering to like your regular customer. And man, that hits that that hits its natural conclusion in Montreal, doesn't it? Where most of those stores don't order anything beyond that week's comics. And if they've got something left over, they just cut the orders the next time. There's like no stock in a bunch of those stores at <laughs> I all. Not, I have not been in a lot of those stores for since taking over the Beguiling. But I guess the one way the store changed to when yeah. I took over uh, before uh, Christopher came on board is that I had shortly after the, uh, taking over been to Europe and visited a store like Lambique. And the beguiling stocked with taste, but everything was essentially faced out. Almost every graphic novel on both floors was showing its face, mm. and then you had new comics on the racks and in the bins. And then I went to Lambique where it's like, oh, they've been ordering the same way, but they've been doing it for a good 10, 15 years longer, and they try to have everything, not just everything that's coming out now, but everything that ever came out. Yeah. And 
they've got everything in the store spine out and it's all there alphabetically. You, can, you know, you really might have to hunt to find it. And a lot of, I was like, yeah, we can do this too. I, I, I can, you know, which over the years changed all the shelves so that by the time we left the beguiling, there wasn't a place in the store that didn't have shelves. There were very little room for anything to be faced other than the handful of new releases, but the shelves were packed and not with multiple copies of the same thing. It was all packed single cop, single, yeah. single copy. The rest is all in the storage. So that was a thing I set in motion after taking over is to like take the stock in that direction, which made for a hell of a move <laughs> sitting on all of that stock. But it also made the store a kind of place that, you know, people could go in and always find something they didn't think they'd be able to find. Right. Like you even going downstairs, you'd see a lot of like magazine stuff and art books and sort of old magazine back issues and which was good for like artist reference and, th- and things like that as artist well. Artist reference was a big thing. We, when the beguiling moved from Harvard to, uh, Harvard and Queen street into the Mervish village location, it was a considerable increase in the size of the store. So to fill it out, art books became a big thing, beat literature, eclectic sci-fi like Philip K. Dick, uh, all these other things were brought into the store and, through my tenure there as the output of graphic novels and book format comics just kept increasing slowly those other sections were squeezed out of the store uh you know first that went first thing to go was the fiction it's like well we need more space for comics other bookstores sell fiction this this can go right right uh and so gradually and little uh, did we know every other bookstore would eventually close yeah. <laughs> that was a bummer. It was uh, uh, weird to be written up in the French press in Toronto to be, it's like, well, uh, the one bright, the, you know, all the bookstores have closed, but at least there's the beguiling and they stock French stuff, but it's just comics. No, there's no books anymore. Right, right. Yeah. So, Chris, I want to get back to, like, you introducing Peter to Oni and stuff. I know that one of the things that sets Beguiling apart is like your relationship with uh, creators. You sort of have your like favorite creators, people that come in. Uh, Chip Zdarsky is one now. Uh, but I also know that like Brian Lee O'Malley, who you were mentioning earlier, used to work in the store and you two were, were roommates, right? Yeah. Uh, so when I was, sorry, to pick up where Peter was, was at, I mean, we were at a point in the store when I started where, yeah, the beats were still there, the fiction was still there, art books and instruction and all that kind of stuff. And we were gradually converting uh, face-out <laughs> shelves to spine-out shelves pretty much nonstop while I was there and adding more shelves. We decided to stock all the manga, and we went through the whole manga boom when that happened, too. Yep. So it just got to the point where the beguiling used to be just – Peter and I, or, you know, Peter and, and Jerry, uh, on the floor, and it got too busy. There was too much product. There was too much to do. And so we started just bringing in extra staff to always have, you know, three people at the store and then four people at the store. And then finally there was like seven at one point at, towards the end of uh, 601. It was just too busy at the store and there was too much to do. But a, p- a part of that was just like, do you know anybody? And it's like, I don't know, I guess Brian is between gigs on, on comics right now. He could probably come in once a week. He was... Uh, a warm body. And that was great. <laughs> I think he's the first to say he didn't do a very good job, but it was like, whatever we, we just need, we had uh, one really nice sign that he made for bags and boards that we actually kept for like years uh, afterwards. We like taped on the wall, but uh, no, I mean, Brian worked there. We've had other cartoonists work. The coma worked there for a while. 
uh, who else was Eric Kim worked there for yeah. uh, a good long while. Uh, lots of folks um, that are just like, you know, artists always need a hand. And then we continued that trend when we opened page and panel, which happened while I was actually in Japan. It was like, let's hire whoever's available. Who hasn't have anything going on in November, December? The answer is, of course, all working comic book artists. So fully, <laughs> fully four people that worked at the store were also artists that exhibited at TCAP. Did you make it into Scott Pilgrim? Because like, w- was it oh, one yeah. of the characters? sort of you because you, uh, you live legally no okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, no Scott Pilgrim is based on uh, Brian O'Malley's time in Toronto so a lot of us that are his friends and, and things like that are characters I was his gay roommate for example or Eric Kim plays I think Knives' dad in volumes 3, 4, and 5 uh, which is and 6 actually too which is pretty good uh, you know Peter's in there Peter's the grumpy landlord in volume four. When they yeah. go to visit. Oh, nice. I, uh, I was good at being grumpy. He was good at being grumpy. He was like, sitting like, just like this arms crossed yep. uh, in the book. Uh, terrified. It was good. It was a fun time, but uh, yeah, it was a good, uh, it was a whole good experience of the Scott pilgrims. And you know, what? Well, I actually, I've been in probably nine or 10 comics. The first time I was in a comic uh, was when the artist brought their mini comic to the store and I had no idea. And the whole comic was about me. Uh, and I won't, name any names but it was just like oh that's what was going on because you don't really know what someone's interior life is when they're talking to you and then they put out a comic about it that is like soul bearing and honest and you're like oh that's what you were thinking about well weird that i'm the subject of a comic but thanks for clearing that up thanks yeah that's great (laughs) how often do you get the like the perfect other side of a conversation but uh yeah you know sometimes you're in comics if you're in a comic book store it happens yeah, totally. That's awesome. So once you, you know, you, you sort of established, you guys kind of became like the trendy store for a lot of people, right? Like you get a lot of like media attention, you get a lot of artists coming in and that sort of thing. How does it feel to be sort of positioned a little bit that way? I mean, you have a lot of original art, a lot of like friends of the store used to have art for, on the wall. For, for media attention, it's important to think in terms of like, you, you know, you're, if you're, yeah, talking right into your microphone, obviously, is part of like dealing with the media. But you know, <laughs> you've got to think uh, people, you, a, a journalist comes in, has some questions, you give thoughtful answers in which you've used complete of more than two or three complete sentences in a row, (laughs) they're going to come back to you next time. They also have a question about comic books and these things feed upon themselves because, you know, you do someone, where does uh, TV get most of its material? Well, they read the newspaper in the morning, they see the article there and they go, we can do a spot on that too. So it it really, once you become established as a go-to source for commentary on a subject uh, it's self-reinforcing mm-hmm. you really have to do a lot to screw it up actually you do re- yeah honestly being able to speak in complete sentences two or three times two or three sentences in a row not too many ums yeah pausing just a little bit to consider what you're doing yeah people love that uh but beyond that we didn't change what we were doing we just did what we did like i brought in the yeah. stuff that i did differently than peter but it was just additive it wasn't i don't think it changed the character of the store too much And then the industry changed around it. Like the industry changed from being this under the carpet or under the under the radar thing to, you know, something that was embracing graphic novels for everybody, graphic novels at all, let alone comic books, then graphic novels for everybody. And if there's a story about, you know, Scott Pilgrim, what was the store in the city that was actually stocking Scott Pilgrim? It's us. Uh, I think the snail wasn't stocking Scott Pilgrim out of like some sort of vendetta for the first three volumes. It was kind of insane. And like, it's just something that happens. Crazy, you know? weird. Uh, and, it, you know, it's 
that's how it goes. You do what you do and you like what you do. And then either people are going to shift their perceptions and get in line with what you do or they won't, but you still do what you do. And we were very fortunate to be positioned to take advantage of things like the rise in manga, because we were already stocking all of the manga, the rise in graphic novel adaptations to film. We'd been stocking Ghost World for a long time before that movie came out. All of that stuff, The Beguiling was doing ahead of time, the graphic novels versus floppies, uh, all of that stuff. Were you just... Were you trying to be ahead of the curve or is it just it was just in line with stuff you liked, like you said earlier in the conversation? There's a little bit of both because, you know, definitely I'm more, you know, you around comics all your life and what you you work in in a store, you're surrounded by them. What is for a personality like mine? What am I going to be interested? I'm going to be interested in something I haven't seen before, which is hard to find at this point. So I'm the personality that is always like searching out something being done new with a medium. So there's a bit of that that's brought to it. But there was a bet that we made early on that is like, where is the audience going to be? And the feeling, at least for myself, was it's like superhero comics is a little bit of a snake eating its tail. It's like you are pursuing the same audience and you are the people who are making these comics, are the people who read them, they're writing them for themselves, and it is, we didn't see something there that was expanding the audience. But, hey, manga's coming along, and they're doing comics for, uh, the Japanese for decades have been doing comics for every audience imaginable, and now some of that's starting to be translated. So there's comics for young girls, there's comics for young boys, there's comics for middle-aged men. And all, some of all of this is sort of trickling in. Uh, and I'm identifying other audiences. It's like, you know what? You know, we might get girls to read more comics. Why don't we get some comics that are written by women? You know, this, this, <laughs> fancy that. And so, Revolutionary idea. Yeah. Or we'll bring in European comics because they're also targeting different age groups than have traditionally been targeted in North America. So there was like a bet being that we're saying it's like, this is how we expand our audience. Little did I know that apparently, you know, with the success of a film based on the Guardians of the Galaxy, right? You mentioned earlier, it's like, apparently there are also a lot of sort of hardcore comic nerds incognito out there that are perhaps not buying comics, but that that material can be sold to. Uh, So uh, I would have, in the year 2000, if someone had asked me, I would have protected, you know, it's like, yep, that's going to be like, these are all going to be gone by the time I'm uh, in my 50s. But it doesn't look like it now. Did you watch your demographic change according to what you were carrying ahead of like Second where floor. we are now. So first floor was general audiences uh, and maybe hard, hardcore comics fans or hardcore, like art comics fans. Second floor was superheroes. Uh, and then it became superheroes and manga and anime in a bigger way. And I think the second floor demographics really changed uh, where it was probably 50, 50 for a while there during the manga boom. And then as manga sort of receded a little bit and, you know, online retailers came into play in Canada more, a little bit less, but uh, you know, the, the demographic, I don't think we ever talked about this. The demographic that I thought was the biggest shift on the first floor, uh, older people, especially older women coming into the first floor, seeing the New York Times book review and going, I know there's a, there's a, there's a weird little shop that's down the street from me that I can get that. And the, it definitely aged up and definitely became more female on the first floor. Like there was always like teen and 20 something girls yeah. that like love and rockets and, and women were coming to the store. But yeah, especially with the rise of things like Mimi Pond's work, uh, Alison Bechtel's work, uh, Ross Chast's, that kind of stuff. We were actually getting a lot of people 
that had never read a comic into their 60s or 70s uh, coming into the store for the first time. Some of them very excited about it. Some of them coming in for their third trip saying, it's like, I'm loving this. <laughs> you know, here's the five I've read. Give me five more. And that's Can those you- are like truly magical customer service interactions where someone is has a big disposable income, has just discovered a new medium, is coming to it with a fully mature, critical insight and can talk articulately about why they like what they like of the things they've discovered. And you get to use the knowledge you've acquired for 20 years to like, oh, I've got some books for you based on what you've told me. Yeah, and you just you just hit their yeah. id it's right a, away and they don't yeah, even know you're going a, to. That's what makes the job worthwhile, that kind of interaction. I've been so lucky to have such great relationships with Mimi at the Toronto Women's uh, Visual Arts Association and things like that, where you're just like people that become – can you imagine getting to 40 or 50 and not not having seen television? And then you sort of wake up one day and you're like, oh, there, there's good stuff on that? I just kind of had written off that whole medium of television. Yeah. But no, there's, television is great. Film is great. Comics are great. Novels are great. All kinds of stuff has so much good All stuff All those in things it. can be great. Can be great. <laughs> it's great as a delivery system, put it that way. Yeah, you're opening people's minds past the comics or superheroes or like comics are just irrelevant. Yeah. Comics aren't aren't even superheroes to a lot of people. To most people, comics are irrelevant right. to most people. And I think relevancy and that sort of realness that I was talking about earlier kind of go hand in hand. People want an experience, like whether that's grounded in something. I don't know. That's why a lot of stuff also rings hollow to me these days is that this, this isn't grounded in anything except itself. Uh, so much of the superhero stuff is so... Not even superhero stuff, but like a lot of the four-issue miniseries is from, you know, not... Yeah, not to pick out image, but image or boom or dynamite where they only read like they were just a failed movie script that someone's got to get into to comic book form in order to get made into a film. There's so much of that garbage out there and they don't mean anything except, you know, the, the, the genre. They're not any, about anything except for being another entry in the genre that they're an entry in. Uh, and it's it's really frustrating. A lot of the superhero stuff. I mean, what what even is like Secret Empire, uh, which is controversial for a whole lot of reasons, uh, most of which I don't really care about, are, is already a problem because it's not about anything other than old comic books uh, being regurgitated like seven or eight times. There's like so many layers of recursive bullshit in that series. It's just like make a comic about something other than I don't know. Well, whatever. Uh, There's no real entry point because it's all referring to itself and. That is the absence of the entry point is almost another problem. Yeah. Yeah, It's like it's so it's gone so far up its own ass. Not being able to tell where the ass started is like one of the problems. Uh, But anyway, sorry. Sorry. You go. That's okay. It's it's so good to hear, you know, different perspectives and stuff. That's why I don't blog anymore. (laughs) Exactly. We were talking about changing demographics and people would ask about the demographics of the store. And it's like at any point. We've always been a good two or three steps closer to gender parity than any other shop that we've been into and had a broader age range in the audience or broader ethnic range. But, you know, being, we're so lucky to be in Toronto, accessible in a way that there's not a lot of barriers for people to come visit the shop. We've, we've been able to see that advance on every front so that you know, one uh, sadly passed away just this past year, but I had a customer well into his 80s coming in looking to like continue reading comic strip reprints of stuff that he had read 
as a child, uh, reminiscing about when they lost their newspaper subscription when the war started. Wow. And how they didn't know how certain storylines ending that he was now reading. So we got like that as the one extreme. And then also to have Little Island as an extension of the store, this children's comic book shop, mm. where the store was around long enough that we got kids who had started there buying Bone, buying uh, Reina's books, other things, and then sort of like, I think I'm old enough that I'll shop at the Beguiling now as opposed to at Little Island. And so Little Island was like that, a stepping stone to the yeah, Beguiling for a lot of people. see actual customers make that age and then start shifting from one store to the other, many of those customers being the children of customers who had uh, grown up shopping at the Beguiling. So it's like seeing that, so it's like, yes, we know we are hitting all of the targets that we at least that we are aware of you're creating that generational customer that the comics industry so covets but isn't but isn't really that isn't really getting a lot they really do but i think it's because they can't they can't see the whole picture you know I, i i will be honest uh talking to a lot of industry people they don't actually ever really get a chance to talk to the customers the ultimate end users of their material they only ever hear the loudest voices who uh, are usually the craziest, frankly. It's a real problem there. And that's why retailer feedback, like good retailer feedback, is so valuable. I've been really fortunate to, I mean, that's how, that's kind of how I got the new job, was just I had been working with, with publishers for so long, offering good advice about how to reach demographics that they weren't reaching, that eventually people started listening to me. And it was very strange, uh, frankly, but uh, nice. I'm glad people listen to me. But yeah, we actually get to see those customers. We get to see them age out. We get to see them on a day-to-day basis. We know when stuff that they're saying isn't even stuff that they believe. Like you can, we can tell right away when someone comes in with an opinion that has been formed by the internet, uh, that has not been formed naturally. There's just like a cadence to the words that is different than their natural speaking cadence and it's incredible and no one i don't think i've ever talked about that either but yeah you can tell when someone's opinion is based on the internet and it's fucked up and that's the those are the kinds of discussions that are more often than not shaping industry decisions as opposed to you know talking to somebody who actually sells every kind of material and seeing why different kinds of material sell to different people you've been listening to speech bubble back after this This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. As a con organizer and founder... You're sort of also on the ground floor of that in terms of industry relationships and figuring out, you know, what people like and programming and that sort of thing. So I wanted to talk a little bit about TCAF. We sort of alluded to it earlier, how it started and stuff like that. But what was that foundational conversation in more detail? Like you, you explained what you wanted, but when did it happen? How did it happen? How did it get put together? How were you put in charge of it, Chris? So I gotta be clear, Peter and I are absolutely the co-founders together of okay. TCAF and the Beguiling. I wouldn't exist if we didn't have the Beguiling to, uh, to sponsor it, especially for the first 
like seven or eight years. I like, think Peter was saying earlier, like he's the resources and you're sort of <laughs> the, the creative uh, brain. That, that wasn't how it was at the beginning. He likes to say that, but he actually invested a lot of time and in, in his role, his personal Rolodex and, a, and your personal uh, brand into that, into the festival. Sure. And I think an important sort of like precursor to this is to talk about like the beguiling doing events, bringing authors in, and hitting a sort of like ceiling as to what we could accomplish with in-store events, doing a lot of them, you know, even after the festival, continuing to do a lot of them. But there's only so much traction you can get for an in-store comic event. There's only so many people that can come out and only so much awareness that can raise. And a lot of what's, by the time we had started TCAF, we had already kind of like felt we were hitting a certain ceiling like we we were doing these events and happy with them but they could only go so far that's probably accurate i didn't actually attend a lot of the beguilings events because i was pretty broke uh, <laughs> so going to an event that cost money or i had to buy a book or feel like a cheapskate i just kind of ended up skipping them so i try to be more sensitive to that when we do events now where we can do events at like we were doing events at the central so much that was just like you could just show up and watch that and not feel pressured to buy a book which is probably the antithesis of a, why a retailer runs an event. But yeah, I liked that. Cause I, I know growing like, like starting out, I didn't have a lot of money to do stuff. And we, I think we charged for like five bucks for some events for so few events too, that I don't feel bad about charging for those. But anyway, what do you, long story short, we were in a car trip to SPX and I came at it from the perspective that Toronto needed a show. And I think Peter agreed that Toronto needed a show, but he didn't want to be the one to do it. I, well, I was like, my plate is already pretty full. And I think coming from Bethesda, we were all like, you know, this isn't a bad show, and it would be a better show if it were in a nicer city mm. where there are more people. And it's like, what is this, SPX? Just so people it's a, know, it is a small one of the longest expo. running small comic book shows. It takes place in Bethesda, Maryland. It's like has really great track record with the guests they get and the history of that. But it was sort of like seeing the audience who had come out for that show after a couple of times and seeing how it's like, oh, this is the same people as last year who are coming. And it's like that you're working with a little bit of a closed system. It's like the thought that it's, if we plunked this room down in the middle of Toronto, imagine what we would accomplish. The first time I tried to look into flying to Baltimore, as before Porter, uh, was $700. And that was like four months out. Uh, and that's crazy. It's But it was like the only people going to Washington, D.C. were people that had expense accounts with which to fly. And that, for me, was a big one that factored into how cons could or couldn't work. Same thing with New York. New York was like $450. And to like the, where I was at that point, like that was a crazy amount of money. Uh, so we ended up driving to shows a lot. And the idea of like, what if your show was on a hub like Toronto, uh, which is now more of an air hub than it, even it was at the time. But not that it isn't an expensive hub to fly into, but yeah. but, but yeah. still like it's better. And yeah, and not, but Porter's I think changed the game a lot as well. But yeah, there's things about big cities, real cities that provide mechanisms uh, for artists to work and live. So you all, you always see, big artistic communities and cities. And that's one of the discussions that's happening right now is that Toronto is pricing out its artistic community and renovating out its artistic community by building more and more housing and condos that is that is out of their reach, uh, fewer workspaces, that sort of thing. I know that, I mean, we had difficulties trying to find a space uh, when the beguiling was closing. It's just the, in, the, the whole market in the city has gone crazy. But at least 15 years ago, uh, 15 years ago next year, 
there was something there that where it was like, there are a lot of people here. There is a benefit to being in a city. There are mechanisms. There's transit. There's like affordable air travel. There's afford, it's, it's within driving distance of everything from Chicago to New York City and then everything in that radius. Um, and I think that that's what makes Toronto an important city. What made it a workable city to have a show? It made it an important city because there was so much talent already here. The Beguiling had done, you know, and, and shout out to the other stores that have their like, you know, strong fan bases. A lot of stores had invested a lot into the city, into comics. And maybe it wasn't all to my taste or, or to Peter's taste, but there were at least, it was a comic savvy city. Uh, right. The snail was thing. bringing people in. Like there were a lot of stores bringing people, people in. Right. Sure. And a lot of like people talk about like, oh, could the, you know, a store like this survive in another city? And it's like, well, our store has spent now 30 years in some part educating its customer base. And if you drop a store as well stocked as the beguiling in a, in a city that might be just as big, but doesn't have the customers to support it. It's taken years to grow that audience and to convince people that they should be dropping a significant part of their paycheck on comics. I think you'd have an easier go of it now than you would have even 10 years ago, though. For sure. I think people know what a graphic novel... I think people who read know what a graphic novel is now. Uh, I don't know if the, the general public still has an idea of what it is sometimes, but uh, my mom still only relates to what I do through the Big Bang Theory, which is a constant, constant dagger in my heart. <laughs> and not at all what what you do necessarily. No. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> okay, so then that's sort of the impetus for TCAF. And now it's just grown and there's there's a lot more international flavor than it started out. Like you said, originally it was for people in Toronto and for artists from Toronto and that sort of thing. So how did it become international you guys have a lot of partnerships with uh, exchanges with other uh, countries and stuff like that how did how did that well, grow out I, I, and this is perhaps something that i brought to the table initially mm. is having been to european shows and i guess the the type of shows that both christopher and i went to previously informed how we wanted to approach this and a lot of my looking is like oh i've been to europe you can do a classy show there's not necessarily an admission. It brings in the general public. You're engaging with other artistic communities and other things. You're expanding beyond. You don't like. There's no point to just doing another comic show where you're catering to comics collectors. You're trying to build an audience to expand on what this is. Right. This is this is a forward thinking show. Yeah. And Christopher brought to the show, having been to many comic shows around North America and appreciating what the experience is like for the artists coming to the show, particularly the artists who are starting out, the economics of coming to the show and appreciating how like these two models that or these two desires of ours kind of meet in the middle in that if through TCAF, he's able to provide a large audience to creators who are not finding that audience at other comic shows that they're going to, it dovetails exactly with what I'm wanting to do, which is also putting comics and the best comics we can find in front of a larger audience who will then take this thing that we do uh, more seriously and perhaps become regular spending fans. Yeah. And doing it for Toronto, um, like you were saying, yeah, we're doing it for Toronto artists, but we're also doing it for Toronto readers. Uh, I, don't, I hesitate to use the word fans sometimes because I think it means a different thing now, but definitely for readers. Um, if you bring some of the greatest comic creators in the world or people who are even just doing 
really, really interesting stuff that don't necessarily have huge audiences. And you plop them next to someone you might know about or someone you've heard of just through basic osmosis. <laughs> you're going to see that work. You're going to you're going to be see that artwork and be changed by it. I, I think the thing I wrestle with maybe the most is the balance between art and commerce and what we do. Um, And I'm always, always worried about it. But in that instance, sometimes just having an artist be at Toronto that's from a different country that has a different cartooning tradition, has a different artistic tradition that they're participating in, sometimes that's its its own reward. Uh, Unfortunately, if we can work with a with a governmental agency or an NGO that does arts to bring someone over to Canada that brings this artistic tradition and it, we can cover their flight and hotel. Maybe they're not going to make a ton of money next to somebody who's just selling mini comics hand over fist, uh, which happens a lot. Uh, but their art being there raises the bar. It opens the discussion. Uh, it, it widens the discussion. I think that that's super important. I think us getting to do an art show for someone that you've never heard of, like uh, like Paolo Bacilieri, Bacilieri uh, is a great artist from Italy. Uh, he had, hadn't had any work in English uh, this year, <laughs> until this year at TCAF, where his first book was translated English. It's called Fun. And it is a story about uh, crossword puzzles and Nabokov and the New York Times and it's all done with giant full page illustrations of art deco buildings with like tiny cross hatching and there was a beautiful beautiful exhibition of original work at the Italian Cultural Institute over on on Huron and Spadina or Huron and uh, Huron and and uh, Bloor and it's the kind of thing where like no one knew who that guy was in North maybe maybe eight people in North America knew who knew his work ahead of time uh, maybe at the show for people who were coming specifically to TCAF, a hundred people figured out who he was, went to the ex- exhibition, but those hundred people are blown away by the work, like absolutely blown away. They came to me and they were like, what, who's that guy in the Italian Cultural Institute? Oh my God. And then on top of that, the Italian Cultural Institute is a, a well, it's an institution in Toronto. It's been here for something like 15 years at that location. They had a gallery show. They had hundreds, thousands of people come through that space over the course of that installation who discovered this comic book work, discovered the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, discovered that there's a scene of people who make comics like this in Toronto. And maybe not every single person who makes comics in Toronto was represented at this year's TCAF. But they're part of the Toronto comics scene. Mm. It's a rising tide that floats all boats situations, as far as I'm concerned. And if we only, I think that there is absolutely, actually, I actually think there's absolutely space for like a Toronto or GTA only comic book show in the city that was just focusing on Toronto arts. I think that there's also space for an illustration show because we can't really take illustrators who don't do comics at TCAF either. But I think that what we do at TCAF is really invite some of the best cartoonists in the world, which draws the eyes of the world cartooning scene on Toronto and everything that's going on here. Uh, I also think there's a lot of different ways to participate in TCAF that aren't necessarily just having a table at the show. And we talked a little bit about that where, yeah, we want to do more for people in Toronto, like Word Balloon Academy, which is a skills building conference. It's totally free to, 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 to creators. Yeah. Like on the Thursday or the Friday, it's all professional development. You can go to courses, learn how to draw, learn skills, that sort of thing. Yeah. Like that's the kind of stuff that we want to give back to the city when we can't give you a table to sell your comics at uh, because there we have a finite space. And to be honest, if we had infinite space, I don't think anyone would have a much better. I think everyone would have a worse show, not a better show. What is it that made the show expand into the Toronto Reference Library? Because I know that it started at U of T. Necessity. Uh, uh, started. Sorry, it started. Yeah, it started actually at the uh, St. Paul's on Bloor, Trinity yeah. St. Paul's. Small um, church. Small church at Bloor and Spadina. 
Um, and that was 2003. 2005, we took over the... Uh, parking lot. Parking lot of Honest Ed's with massive tents. I don't know. That might have been my idea. That was crazy. That was a crazy idea. Uh, and Was the weather good, at least? Nope. Oh. <laughs> uh, just barely bad enough that we needed to have the tents, but yeah. <laughs> And then uh, 2007 was the first one you came to, which was at uh, Victoria College. Uh, And since that, at the Toronto Reference Library. Uh, So why did it go there? Well, the Beguiling has had a long and strong relationship with the Toronto Public Library system, both with supplying with the graphic novels and doing events with them. Uh, And so it was a natural to look to them with a beautiful large building, but we had outgrown the U of T space the year we moved into it, uh, as was happening each time we did. Yeah, 2005, I mean, there were tent times when you just couldn't move through any of the tents, even though they weren't that full. 2003, I think, was maybe the first year was the only year where it kind of felt like we could get away with it, but it wasn't the best space because we did uh, that in the Transact Club. All of our programming was at the Transact, and all of our Exhibitors were sort of just down the street at uh, Trinity St. Paul's. We wanted everything to sort of be closer together. And we did actually want it to be a festival, uh, especially more so than it is now, but especially at the beginning where we wanted there to be festive elements to what we were doing. Like Like the idea of an outdoor space, the idea of decorating and participating and pulling comics out of uh, convention spaces, out of gray convention or hotel spaces, especially. Uh, And that has become more and more of a necessity, unfortunately, as we've, we've gotten bigger, but Man, we lucked out with Toronto Reference Library. It's just just a great big open atrium that has natural light, which is about the best we could hope for, probably. And uh, part of you know part of what separates us from other comic events around North America is that it's free to attend to the public, and nothing right. quite says free like having it in a public library. Right? Yeah, we really dovetail nicely with Toronto Public Libraries. Uh, Toronto Reference Library as a building is great; uh, it has its challenges, but we really like it. Uh, but Toronto Public Library does thousands of hours of programming every year, everything from authors to how to use Microsoft Word for seniors, like everything happens at the library. And I think that there's a generation of people, the millennials, I believe they're called, that is just discovering or <laughs> has discovered that. Uh, library usage is up a lot. Um, we've worked Toronto, we worked with Toronto Public Library as the beginning for a long time before TCAF started. Yeah, you service uh, like schools and, and libraries uh, with yeah, comics so, and stuff. Yeah, beyond the Toronto Public Library, we do sales to school libraries across the country, even some internationally. Uh, uh, as well as smaller public library systems all around the province. So, yes. Yeah, and, and TPL has basically the best collection of comics in North America now, uh, thanks to us, which is, I, I guess, a little braggy, but whatever. We did it. Um, but, yeah, and uh, TPL, like, we just become, honestly, their biggest program that they that they do all year. But it is part of the programming that they're already doing. And I think that that was a natural fit. I think uh, particularly during the Ford administration when libraries were really under attack, uh, having something that was seen to be as populist as a comic book event was probably really helpful (laughs) (laughs) because the libraries were under attack for being useless or or at least not useful, directly useful. And we tried to counter that as much as possible. TCAF couldn't exist in its current form without the support of the library. Uh, we wanted to remain a free festival uh, and, as, and as cheap as possible for everyone participating. It's awesome. The thing that I noticed, though, going to the Toronto Reference Library every year is that I feel like you guys are outgrowing even the Toronto Reference Library because a lot of your programming is outside of that at the surrounding hotels and that sort of thing. But now you have Page and Panel, which is a store 
sort of in the Toronto Reference Library. So I don't know if you can ever leave the Toronto Reference Library if you if you outgrew it. Well, we we opened in Toronto Reference Library when the Beguiling was the only store that uh, that was there, <laughs> and that wasn't nearby, and it just gave people an excuse to leave the library. Right. Um, yeah. I'll just I'll be real transparent here. The library is a great landmark, and it's a great way to get people to come to TCAF, but we try to get people as much out of the library and into the surrounding neighborhood as possible because we do like the library and we want to keep using it as for as long as we can. And uh, I'm just going to be honest, North Americans, especially people who go to air quotes conventions, uh, really have an idea of what that experience is supposed to be. And it is wrong. They're just wrong. Uh, And my job is to try and educate them and try and lead them away from that. Going to a convention center and paying $40 a day is bullshit. Just is. I don't know why people do it. I wouldn't do it, but they do it. So if they're going to do it, they grant their teeth, they go, they pay their admission fee that's too high, that's uh, sometimes as high as like $100 a day these days. They buy their $15 garbage hot dog uh, because they don't want to leave the convention center because they've paid to be there, so they may as well get every ounce of enjoyment out of it. They get tired, so they throw themselves against a wall and are sitting sullen uh, against a wall for the whole time that they're there. Uh, and it's just like... How is that fun for anybody? How is that fun for you to get dressed up and then sadly sit against a wall because you're so afraid to go outside because you won't be able to get in because they oversold the convention by 40%. And meanwhile, the celebrity lineups, you know, people are charging for autographs, you know, all that sort of stuff for like a little brief interaction with your favorite creator. You're waiting in these long lineups and paying on top of your your admission fee and thing and things like that as well. I'm sympathetic to people put together who small shows. I put together a small show with uh, Miles Baker and Andrew Townsend and our team. But at the same time, there are ways that you can spend money and there are ways that you can not spend money and I think that you need to pay to go to a show like that if you because the convention centers aren't cheap. But if you think that the people at the top of that show aren't getting very very rich off of your money, you are mistaken. And so we put out a different model. We could even charge, you know, we could start offering all that kind of stuff and not charge more than $15 a day to go to the show. But I think there's also a perception issue there. If people pay $40 at the door, they think that they're getting $40 worth of entertainment. And if they pay 15, they think, oh, I'm losing out $25 worth of entertainment. But, you know, that's, that's real Mac, like microeconomics, comic book convention stuff, but straight up. I want a different model of show. I want people to be able to participate in this medium or in fandom, even in a general way without getting robbed by every single person along the way or not have to buy anything. Anyway, you just go to the programming. If you just want to go to the programming and participate in the festival that way, that's great. If you want to, if you have it financially within you to support the artists who are making the work that generates the programming, that's awesome. Please do that. (laughs) But you've got $40 in your pocket and you're paying $40 to get in and then you don't have any money for the rest of the day and all those artists and all those people that are actually at the show that are hoping for your economic support so they can keep making their work, that's a broken model uh, because you don't have any money left to spend with them after getting in the door. And that kind of sucks. So that's the deal. But all, uh, the other thing is that very specifically, we are trying to target people who don't view this as, you know, the, the best, uh, some of the best because people show up at the library, they knew it was free, they come in, they see all the stuff that's there. And it's like, oh, my God, I got to get out of here, because I didn't bring cash, I got to go to a bank machine. And, you know, fine, they're, they are spending money. That's not what they came there to do. Yeah. They came there because they heard about this good word amount about this great event. And sometimes those people are just like, 
will tell me afterwards, it's like, oh, I went to that thing you do at the library. <laughs> What's that called? I listened to three talks. They were so interesting. Maybe they didn't buy anything at all. But we're engaging with, you know, that person having that kind of experience. He's not going anywhere near any other comic show because, one, they're not in places people go. They're uh, the admission is prohibitive. That's no one's no one who is casually wandering in and listening to some talks is going to drop. Uh, and, you know, some of those shows do have programming, but no one's dropping 40 bucks on an off chance of something they aren't already a fan of. Right, right. And for a lot of the shows, you can't even walk up anymore. They've done a really good job at making people think if they don't buy tickets, they're not getting in, which then self-perpetuates. So everyone buys their tickets ahead, even if they're not sure who's going to be there or if their friends want to go or any of that kind of nonsense. It's I don't know. I don't. I could spend another hour just shitting on <laughs> stuff I don't like, but, but yeah. But, but there's up. a very specific what reason, and the 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 things we don't like about the shows are very specifically what inform why we do things the way we do. Yeah, yeah. And why we haven't minded when people have taken up the baton. It's a little bit weird to find out that someone is naming themselves Lycaf or uh, Vancaf or Ncaf, like after the fact, uh, where it's just like, oh, okay, I guess you're just going to do that but at the same time as long as they're taking our model as long as they're keeping their show as close to free as possible uh as long as they're doing all the things that keep expanding the audience not catering to the existing audience that's kind of cool that's a nice victory for us it's a victory for all of the people that we started the show for the artists the people that are doing interesting exciting work the the communities in individual cities uh yeah i'm glad that there was a van calf uh i'm so glad that there was a van calf that we had to take over the van calf to make sure that the van calf kept running yeah because vancouver needs a scene man so that started from your inspiration but now you're partnered in van calf sort of uh i I don't know what the official line is but essentially we found it it was going to stop running uh and so we stepped in to help it be a thing so i'm actually just a consultant for van calf okay andrea demonakos is the uh festival director of VanCaf, and then there's a board of directors, the Vancouver Comic Arts Association that we helped install that are helping sort of guide VanCaf going forward. Uh, but so, she she got her inspiration from TCAF. Well, the the founder was Shannon Campbell, okay. and she got her inspiration from TCAF for sure, yeah, and uh, wanted to do something for like TCAF, but for the Vancouver side of things, for her community, and uh, yeah, I think that's great. Uh, we went and did our first VanCaf this year. It was good. It actually worked out pretty well. I think people were happy. It was a good transition year, too. And there's a lot of work that uh, we are already doing that just are naturally to sort of throw in and give a hand to an organization that's sort of doing the same goals in the same country. But it also, like, the the fact that it's like, oh, maybe this is, maybe uh, VanCaf is going to stop is because... You know, it's hard to do these things. Oh, my God. It is so hard. The the enormous amount of free labor put in not just by Chris and I, but a lot of other people to keep TCAF going to the point where it is now is... Miles, Andrew. Yeah. Andrew, uh, It's an enormous amount of work being put in to put on a free show. Jared. <laughs> so so what goes into it and Damn, why do you keep Carrie. doing it if it's so much if it's so much work? Cuz it has to be what done. What motivates you? It just has to be done. Uh otherwise things go to shit. Uh there's no point. In, sorry. I I have a different I have a almost fatalist view of it. <laughs> but I was talking I was talking to Anquayama about this. You should get her on your program. She'll okay. have some answers for you. Anquayama does this because it has to be done. I think Anquayama gets it and TCAF 
there are just people who need TCAP. There are people who wouldn't have comic careers. We would we wouldn't have good co- some good comics that we have now, some great comics that we have now, if TCAP hadn't been there for them to say, oh, this is something that I can actually work towards. If you're making indie black and white whatever comics, there are precious few end goals for that other than making the work for its own reward. But making TCAF and making the sale of those books viable uh, in some way, as like a, even as a supplementary career option, super important. I think that TCAF did that uh, for, for some people. I think other shows do that for other people. Yeah, it's awesome. So, and then you started putting out these extensions, like to go back to your relationship with the library, uh, you were saying earlier that off air, that Little Island was part of your relationships with the library. It was like an offshoot of what you were already doing uh, with well, the library. Uh, sorry, we had we had a store that was packed to the gills. Yeah. You visited you visited many times. Right? Yeah. So and uh, so the Big Island was packed, and we also had a library services division. We needed more room for the library services division. What is that? That's a bunch of people at desks, answering emails, filling orders, packing boxes for libraries across the country. You know, they need their comics. They want to buy them from someone who knows what they're talking about when they buy them. And uh, we naturally filled that role. But that needed a home. We found a home that had some retail frontage. And so it's like, well, what do we do with that retail frontage to take some pressure off the beguiling? What piece of the beguiling can survive on its own? And there were all sorts of options discussed. Uh, you know, it could have just been, oh, that's where we put our remainders and bargain bins. Like, but we decided with a, a staff of who are high, of highly trained people, experts in comics for mostly young readers, it's like, why don't we have a shop geared towards kids? Wouldn't that be a neat idea? And it turned out it was a neat idea. It was uh, a neat idea. Because the space that we found for them to work had this retail frontage. They could all be doing their work, and someone could be minding the shop, and it would always be somebody who was really passionate about that type of material. That's kind of where the store has found its successes and why it hasn't done certain other things is that to be able to sell something, I feel very much that it's like I have to be invested in that thing Mm -hmm. uh, or have some staff that is invested in that thing. And, you know, we've never really sold toys. Uh, Chris managed a store at one point that did, but there's no one at the Beguiling who's really passionate about toys. So, uh, you know, I could order toys in, but why do that? Why do that if you're not passionate about it? The same is true of... Uh, <laughs> Man, so there, there are, I hope there's a retailer over there that's listening to this that's just rolling and is, like, just rolling over with fury. It's like, you order stuff that you that just makes money. Like, you don't really care about the stuff you order. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your thought there, but, like, yeah, the number of stores that are just ordering shit that they don't like or actively hate to, like, pay the bills is super high. Sure, Secret Empire. I know we had this conversation already. <laughs> but but what I'm saying is if I'm in a marketplace where I'm competing against somebody who really cares about toys and I'm trying to sell toys, I'm not going to do well against that guy who cares, right? Mm. And why why try and do a thing like why spend 6 days a week of my life doing a thing that I don't care about? Uh, and that has informed a lot of like the product decisions, but also you know, having a staff who really care about the product made Little Island the success that it was. Yeah. The only reason it's not here was because it was part of the Mervish Village block, right? right? It, it was, it's a space thing. It never really carried its weight in terms of Toronto retail square footage rent for the space that it had. But because it was attached to this other division, it like couldn't 
support a space unto itself and find an own store for that. But who knows what will happen? It's the stock of Little Island does now informs a very much smaller but really well stocked children's section at the Beguiling and a very well stocked picture book section and children's graphic novel section at Page and Panel. Yeah. So like those sales are continuing to happen, but unfortunately, adults are in the space as well. Right. So, it, so it, it may come back in some form, or it's it, already here in a sectional sort of way. It's here in a sectional way. Who knows what the future may hold? But it's, uh, yeah, it was kind of a special thing to be able to have this store that had all those great comics for kids, but also didn't have any of the adult stuff. But for the time being, we make do with the adult stuff being there, too. And page and panel, is that just a continuation of TCAF all year so that people can get their TCAF Jones when TCAF isn't on? Yeah, so the so page and panel is actually not owned by Peter. Okay. Uh, it, page and panel is the basically fundraising arm of TCAF, which is not-for-profit. Okay. Uh, and so page and panel exists, I think, uh, Miles Baker is... Uh, the managing director of TCAF, I'm the artistic director, and Miles is uh, also the store manager there. And it's got its own separate staff. Um, it has a great relationship with the Big Island because Big Island is one of TCAF's biggest sponsors. But yeah, it's it's basically kind of its own thing and, and growing more and more to be its own thing uh, over the years. Um, you know, I travel a lot uh, and I get exposed to all kinds of opportunities that the Big Island doesn't have, again, the passion uh, year round or even the, the physical space sometimes year round to be able to take advantage of, uh, especially when it comes to merch, things like that. So yeah, for me, it was a big deal to, uh, to be able to take op- op- like advantage of these opportunities to have, you know, great boom and stuff, to have Tintin stuff, to have asterisk stuff, to have Barba Papas, which was lots of fun to bring in some of the Japanese toys that I think are cool. And also comics related everything that's in the store. Almost, I would say almost everything, but it comes back to uh, comics or or book culture in some way. I really love that part of it. Um, I love that, yeah, we've got some toys or some cat figures or whatever, but it's the cat figures from Cheese Sweet Home, which is like an amazing manga series that Vertical published, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, Page and Panel is about – that's the, the merch side. The other side is the art and the zines and the, the comics and – the t-shirts and all that kind of stuff that goes with TCAF. And I think the venue of Toronto Public Library has influenced TCAF and it's definitely influenced Page and Panel in the shop that it's become. Yeah. Because anybody who runs a shop, you know, you have a vision of what you want to do, but your clientele influences that that vision and every neighborhood is different and the the you know, the space that was offered there to us could have been like, oh, this is going to be a new home for the Big Island, but we didn't see that as the right thing. It's like there was a decision very early on that this is going to be its own thing. This, uh, the you know, it's going to be tight with the beguiling. Beguiling will help do some supply chain stuff, but this is going to be an entity unto itself. And, you know, I, not very many stores around North America have two comic shops, uh, have a comic shop like the beguiling. There's no city that needs two. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. but so they're very they're intentionally very different and i love the thing that i love about the magic of tcaf and page and panel and the fact that it's in the toronto reference library is that people are just going to the library and they don't even know that a show is going to be happening or that page and panels even in there and then they see something like tcaf and they're like oh what's going on here and then they get sucked in to the whole thing and that happens at page and panel too it's like they don't even realize that there's a comic shop in, almost every day you know yeah you can do the first 
10 feet from either door of page and panel and it's just stationary supplies, you know, bottles of water <laughs> and uh, mints and things like that. Stuff that you might need if you were at the library and forgot your pencil. Uh, but then you can go in 10 feet further and it's like, oh my God, there's so much going on here. I love that. I like, sp- I like springing that surprise on people. I also like that we've got like some crazy amount, like 30 feet of frontage along Young Street as well to do displays and things like that. So, you know, directly facing Yorkville, we've got graphic novels more often than not. That's kind of fun uh, as well. I love that we get to, yeah, we get to put comics in a visible way. I think uh, that was one of the big things about TCAP, again, is that we didn't want to be at a convention center or a hotel. I think we wanted to be visible. We wanted to be more out on the street and more festive because we are trying to reach those people that don't necessarily that aren't necessarily reached by comics. Right, right. So, Peter, I, I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Mervish Village and the move to the new store. Oh, what was that like? What precipitated that? And what is the, the vision for the new store? How has it changed? Uh, because well, of the space. I will say that the move was traumatic in a certain way in that there was so much work to be done in a certain amount of time that we had lots of plans going in that not a lot of them went to fruition. We had, you know, the Mervishes were great and they gave us three years to think about, to, to find a spot, but that also, most of that was spent raising money to get ready for moving, you know, mm-hmm. not, uh, and, I don't think at uh, until the 11th hour we imagined the spot that we were in, but it turned out to be fantastic. The new spot had fantastic foot traffic. Uh, it's really great to not have stairs going in for the number of people. I know, yeah, thumbs up from you and many others that this is a, you know, approaching real accessibility. It um, is in a very vital neighborhood. And uh, it's almost as big as the old space. Uh, it's got great storage and things like that. So it has turned out to be very good. It, but that was some, some. It was a stressful winter for your customers. Did it take some getting used to? Uh, it's oh, people are still, still getting still getting used to it. So we're still getting used to it. I mean, there are. You know, uh, we had a huge section devoted to manga in the old store, and we still have all of that manga, but instead of having 64 volumes of Naruto on the shelf, we've got the first one and the last one. And if you want any of the ones in between, you have to ask, and we'll get it for you, right? So there's things that we've had to do to make this space work. Uh, Similar struggle around sort of recent back issues of comics. You know, we've always tried to be a store where... uh, we can talk to you and hopefully you tell us what you're interested in because those conver- the customers that we have conversations with are the customers that keep coming back the most. But if you're afraid to ask for the thing that you want, you're perhaps not uh, finding everything you want in the new store. Yeah, it's tough. For those people who are not from Toronto and don't really know who the Mervishes are and like Mervish Village and that sort of thing, uh, the Mervishes owned this giant carnival barker of a department store called Honest Ed's. But not only did they own this huge department store at a time when department stores are definitely on the decline and closing, they also owned the surrounding community of that department store on a street called Markham Street. And they would rent out all those little shops or, or buildings that surrounded the department store to business owners, small business owners. So they owned 
every building and the beguiling was in one of those buildings that the Mervishes owned. The beguiling was in one, Little Island. Island was in one, library services was in the back of that, our storage was in the second floor of another, storage in the basement of another. So we had a lot to move when that all changed. And there was a lot of like, because it was such a an iconic building and a neighbor, like sort of very much part of a neighborhood. There was a lot of anxiety by both our customers and ourselves. It's like, how is the beguiling going to find a space like that? And it isn't a space like that, but uh, it has all sorts of plus sides uh, and is very much part of a neighborhood now that, uh, yeah. And the reason that the Mervishes have a place like Mervish Village for all of these, or they did for all of these stores, is because they wanted to foster a community of entrepreneurial uh, no. retail. Well, that sort of well stuff. they wanted to have a parking lot, okay. and then the city didn't let them tear down all the buildings, so they ended up with a community they fostered. So that was right. So they got, they got a positive PR spin out of something that wasn't. That was kind really of their whole deal, intended. yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was uh, like, yeah, that was uh, the buildings that uh, I was in on Mervish Village was supposed to be a parking lot. And because the city did not allow it, it became an artist community and uh, very much kind of modeled on a Greenwich Village sort of thing, hence the name with little, uh, uh, originally a lot of artist studios, an art bookstore, and over the years came to include artistically minded businesses kind of like ours. Right. And thank you for correcting me. Uh, I should mention that the thing that happened was that Honest Ed's, they decided to sell and that whole development, including Mervish Village, is about to become a, a condo development. Uh, uh, apartments, actually. Okay. They want to do it as rentals. They don't want to sell oh, okay. units, which is, I don't I don't know how long that's going to last. We're gonna, I don't really uh, trust them. In terms of all of the plans for this development, my... Uh, that I always say it's like let's see what actually gets built because it's <laughs> it's it's all just plans at this point and uh, the proof is in the building right right exactly uh, but it's also something that's just completely not my problem anymore <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome which is so nice too. so finally what's the beguiling what's TCAF gonna look like in the future I know that. Uh, Chris, you're you're leaving the left. beguiling. You've you've left yeah. the beguiling. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me about this new opportunity that I keep hearing about. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to bogart the future of the beguiling with my own shit. I don't know. I think the beguiling is fine. Uh, frankly, without me, uh, <laughs> thirty years there'll be another thirty. Uh, who knows what that'll look like though? Man, you'll be I'm young. Old. You'll be you'll be so young. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the Beguiling and TCAF have good teams in place. I think it took a long time, but uh, yeah, I th I got offered an opportunity to go and work uh, as an editorial consultant at Viz Media. Um, so all the manga, all the work I've done with manga over the years, both as a retailer, both as someone who and, and as someone who wrote about uh, the manga industry and the medium, and and you know likes likes comics in general, uh, I will be working with Viz, the, the, the Naruto and one, one Punch Man, but also the Tech on Kingcrete and 20th Century Boys and Pluto people. So, yeah, Tech on Kingcrete is great. That's uh, awesome. Uh, you go back and forth to Japan quite often. You have sort of a love affair with it. <laughs> More so now. Uh, yeah, I was going twice a year. I actually just really loved Japan and I never got to go. And so I went uh, one year and I was like, oh, actually, this lives up to every single thing, both good and bad, that I thought about the country before I got there. And then we went two years later when we could afford it for a second vacation. And I was just like, I've got to figure out a way to get here every year. This is the best thing. So I figured out a way to buy stuff 
from Japan and bring it back to the Big Island for sale, mostly at Anime North, but just throughout the year, we built up a good clientele for yeah. some of the art books, a lot of the porn, uh, a lot of the porn for ladies. Uh, it was good times. And um, yeah, that just also dovetailed with TCAF wanting to bring in sort of more international cartoonists as well. So we were really lucky in 2009 to bring in the uh, late, um, now late, uh, Yoshiro Tatsumi, who was a good friend of both Peter and ours, or Peter and mine. Um, and he came and he was our sort of our first Japanese guest. And, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where if you've never been to a show before, uh, knowing that one of your countrymen, especially in Japan, has been to a show uh, and that they're going to take care of you and the publisher is going to take care of you is a big deal. Uh, we've, we've found over the years that uh, most of the guests that we get from Japan are because they're friends with another guest who's already been there. So it's super important to really take care of guests, make them feel welcome, make them understand what you're doing and why you do it. Um, it's really great. Uh, so yeah, the, those sort two things sort of dovetailed together enough that it basically became second nature to be there. And we started bringing our own cartoonists to Japan too, for TCAF. Uh, Peter and I led the first expedition of TCAF in Tokyo. Uh, when was that? 2013, 2012. Yeah. But four years ago now. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. So, that was great. so it's like a really reciprocal relationship. No, yeah. we love Japan more than it loves us, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, with all of the things that we do culturally with, TCAF now, it's become clear that it's like, yes, we can lean on a consulate to get someone to come here, and that gives us an international guest that looks good, but it, the more we can make those two-way, where we are doing something to promote Canadian uh, comics abroad, uh, and have this the, the, you know be an exchange of cultures on both ends, all the better. Yeah, on the TCAF side of things, we're exhibiting uh, at LICAF, which is the Lakes International Comic Arts Festival. It'll be in October in Kendall, England, which is about two hours north of Manchester. Uh, and we're bringing uh, Claudia Davila and Mike Cho, Chip Zdarsky, Ryan North is coming on that one. Uh, I think Omerico Tamaki is coming on that one. It's going to be a good time. When you bring artists on like do you provide like all the accommodation and like what do they have to get themselves there like how does that work uh we work uh with the government of canada through arts and travel grants uh to help bring the cartoonists there just like when people come here we help cover you know accommodations and things like mm. that if the guests can get there on their own uh, and a lot of the shows that we exhibit at uh overseas do the same thing where they'll like you know they'll cover accommodations in a small per diem and stuff like that if we can work with the government to actually get them on a plane uh and it's uh it's an interesting new <laughs> texture to the work that we're doing yeah. uh, with, uh, with the festival where it's just like we really are working hard to try and promote creators' careers uh, internationally. Like once you get to that point where your work is either about to be is, – is being considered for international publication or you've had your first book published in French or in Japanese or with an UK edition, uh, it's a great time to go over. And all the creators we're, we're bringing now have I've had that to some degree. And it seems like you have ac more access to more people because of these exchanges. Like, didn't Lycaf bring Dave McKean this past this past TCAF? They not yes. only brought Dave McKean, they actually commissioned, using their governmental funds in the in England, they commissioned Black Dog, the, the show that we did at TCAF this year, where he could do this multimedia project, which was the graphic novel, which was the, the live stage performance. And I think that there's another component that he could actually take the time to make this 
you know, that make this a book that was important to him about a World War One artist and poet, which is, you know, not something that the market necessarily is clamming for. But once you see it, it's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, that's great. Yeah. So they commissioned that. And then having performed it successfully four or five times in England, we were their first show outside of England that they performed it at. And those kinds of relationships with festivals allow us to do stuff like that. It's, it's so great. And this is incredible because it was like a multimedia performance of a graphic novel yeah. that was like projected on the screen with voices and, and animation and, and the music, music and yep. everything. Yeah. It was crazy. Uh, people are going to be kicking themselves for missing that one for a few years. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that goes back to what Peter was saying about making sure that there's always something in the festival that isn't quite recorded or put down that you really wanted to have seen in person if you could. Right. Uh, because we want people to come to the festival because the artists are there selling their books and we need them to, we need you to buy their books so that they can keep making new books. And there's right. always something that happens at TCAF that maybe we didn't even announce that is like there was a reason that you wanted to be there. Things, yeah. things there, there is, as you know, use the festival thing, but there's a magical quality to it. If you get all of these people in the room and the interactions and things that happen that, you know, there's no way you can capture that in another way. Right, exactly. So, Peter, just to finish the final thought about the future of, of the beguiling. Sure. What are, your, what are your plans now? Now that we know that Chris uh, has his own plans, uh, what, are, what are your plans for the future? Uh, what does it look like? Sabotaging me. Uh, <laughs> well, for, I mean, for a long time, what we relied on Christopher for was sort of like special projects, forward vision, the th- like the big picture looking forward. And so, you know, that is a very difficult thing to replace. You know, uh, I'm going to try and try and handle a little more of that rather than just sort of being ensconced in my little world in the store, making sure things keep running. Uh, but in terms of the actual nuts and bolts managing of the store, we have a fantastic team in place at both stores. And they are not, they are not perhaps as sort of like big, industry personalities like Christopher was, but in some ways that works to their advantage. It really does. <laughs> yeah. They're, uh, it's, it's good. I think, I don't think I could have left, uh, well, I'm not really leaving. I'm still here, right? They uh, kind of have a clean slate. We're uh, still doing a, Oh God, no, they're, they're going to be picking up my messes for years. <laughs> um, no, I think that you got, they have, there's a strong team at the beginning. There's a strong team at TCAF and I don't think I could have, uh, abdicated my responsibilities at the beginning or stepped back just a little bit at TCAF if there wasn't a strong team there. Right. Uh, and I'm really glad that there is. Like, I'm glad that there's people that is that are doing that work and that the stores are going to keep going. But Hell, my uh, husband still works there. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not that far gone. Yeah, you still have a stake in the, in the success of the beginning, at least. Uh, sure. And I, think I mean, we, I, I think all of comics does yeah, yeah. has a stake in the success of the beginning. Because, man, uh, are, there's still, I don't know, that's still the place where people discover... Just, I feel like discover comics, you know? And my feeling is like, hey, Christopher's going to be working at Viz. It's like, that's great because that means even more great books are coming from there that I'm going to sell. And, you know, uh, his work for them is also benefiting me directly. Yeah, so, you better get your merchant stock ready. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it's also benefiting all sorts of other people now, but it's definitely, it, you know, it works in my favor too. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thank you guys for coming in. Uh, just before we go, where is the store? How can people follow you? How can people find you if right. they want to check it out? So if you're coming to Toronto or if you live here already, we're a pretty accessible uh, location just on the north end of Kensington markets. We're part of the Kensington BIA. We're on College Street, 
just west of Spadina. So in between Spadina and Augusta, there's a bunch of big new buildings around there, but uh, we're pretty easy to find at 319 College. We have an online presence at beguiling.com, beguiling.ca. They all go to the same thing. You want to do? Well, you can also find The Beguiling online at at the Beguiling on Twitter uh, right. where, and at The Beguiling on Instagram, where they're very active, actually. I should, I should follow those. You probably should. Uh, I still do. I still post occasionally when no one's paying attention. Uh, Page and Panel, the TCAF shop, operates year-round. It was opened as a pop-up because uh, we weren't quite sure how it was going to work, but it worked out great. And uh, it's at 789 Young Street, which is better known as the front of Toronto Reference Library. It's on Young, just north of Bloor. We're at Young Subway Station. Very convenient for those of you from out of town. You can find us pretty much everywhere uh, as at TCAF shop. So T-C-A-F shop. Uh, and uh, yeah, we don't post quite as often as The Beguiling does, but when we do, it's quality, you know? Uh, <laughs> the Beguiling also, I should also point out, does a lot of great events, um, as, as does Page and Panel. And we're currently sharing our events on a sort of group mailing list, so our newsletter, The Beguiling newsletter. Right, so, are you doing a, a, a comic shop ladies' night on the 22nd? We got a ton of stuff coming up. Comic shop ladies' night is this is tomorrow. Uh, and so oh, that's been at Page and Panel before and now is doing its first one at The Beguiling. Yeah, and we'll be back to Page and Panel someday, I think. Uh, we've got, uh, we just did the Johnny Sun event uh, this past week, and that was gangbusters. That was sort of, uh, it's one of the, oh, that's, there's a thing that's nice about page and panels that we can do stuff that's not strictly comics. It's illustration and books and prose and all kinds of stuff that fits in with, you know, that people that we might otherwise have at the, at the shop or the festival. Um, and we've got stuff coming up too. What have we, uh, we got? Well, I'd like our big fall one that we're planning is uh, two Koyama books. Uh, one of them, Patrick Kyle locally yeah. and the other woman whose work I have not read yet we're doing them both together because it's really nice to pair someone who is in town with someone who is out of town. Yeah. Uh, you sort of have like a host guest thing going on. Right. And uh, as we did with the Beguiling, we had a bar next door. Here we've got a bar across the street, the Free Times Cafe. So that's coming up late October. Is that late October? Yeah. Uh, maybe. Uh, page and panel, we've got uh, a Japanese illustrator who does cutouts um, that does like almost like shadow box 3D paper art. Um, her name's uh, Chihiro. I can't remember her last name. We haven't announced that yet, but that's actually coming uh, real soon. That's going to be the first week of last week of September, first week of October. Uh, we've also got, we actually just announced a bunch of events too. Um, so I don't know. We're always doing stuff. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, oh, actually, it's Sherlock Holmes month uh, next month at Toronto Reference Library. They've got the fifth floor Sherlock Holmes room. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's crazy. No one knows it's up there, but go to the fifth floor. It's like all done up like his parlor and they've got every Sherlock Holmes book or appearance. So we're going to do an event around that, I think, with Toronto Reference Library. We're working on that. That's uh, too. amazing. Wow. So thank you guys so much for coming in oh, and uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.